Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Hey listeners, this is going to be our last episode of 2017, so we'll be taking about a three, four week hiatus and coming back with a new episode on January 16th. When we come back in the new year, we'll have another half season for you and we're really excited to see how this project evolves for ASCA. In the meantime, we really would love to hear from you. I know I say it at the end of every episode, but we'd really love your feedback about what you think of the podcast, how we might be able to improve it, or just kind of your general thoughts. So please do go on to Apple Podcasts and rate and review us, or please do reach out to us directly on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or at our Gmail account, ascapodcast at gmail.com. We really, really would love to hear from you. Today's episode features Karen Joshua Wathel. Karen serves as the Associate Dean of Students at Kalamazoo College in Kalamazoo, Michigan. She has oversight of student conduct and disability support services. Karen is a graduate of Western Michigan University, where she earned her master's degree in higher education and community mental health, and she holds her bachelor's degree in individual and family relationships. One of her favorite quotes is, Be yourself. Everyone else is already taken from Oscar Wilde. Welcome to the podcast, Karen Joshua Wathel. Karen comes to us as the Dean of Students at Kalamazoo College in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and she also currently serves as the Director for Private Colleges and Universities on the ASCA Board of Directors. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Glad to be with you today. And today, Karen and I are really going to dig into a lot of her expertise related to how uh, working with students with disabilities and disability support services intersects with student conduct. It's a, something that we've been seeing a lot lately, where professionals on entrenched both in student conduct and in working with students with disabilities don't totally understand each other. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, But before we dig into that, Karen, I'm hoping you can tell us how did you get to your current position at Kalamazoo and with ASCA? Uh, Well, years ago when I was in uh, college, I had this wonderful dean of students. Her name was Dr. Marie Stevens at Western Michigan University, where I graduated from. And uh, I thought I'd really like to do what she does. And uh, finding out that at that time that she was the dean of students, um, that really interested me, of course, because most people don't know that when you see people on campus that those are real jobs. And so I say that because students don't understand that, yes, this is a real job and you can actually major in this and Mm -hmm. become who I am. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I just sort of uh, asked her a few questions about uh, her position and end up getting a master's degree in uh, higher education. And so and that led me to several jobs in higher education. I've done admissions and and uh, special programs and things like that. And so uh, currently I'm a, I'm associate dean of students at Kalamazoo College. And so I'm looking forward to my next step and we'll see where that leads me. Um, so that's how I got into this position. I like to joke that no one grows up saying, I want to be a student affairs professional. It's like not a thing. They don't. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It's not on the list of firefighter and teacher and all of those other things. Or astronaut. That's right. 
That's right. That's right. So, Karen, in your current position, what functional areas do you oversee? I oversee uh, disability services and the student code of conduct area, as well as uh, anything that should walk through the door at the time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm usually uh, there to deal with that. So as is um, other area, other individuals in the office. But a lot of times I'm the one that sort of catches things. Excellent. And you're also on the ASCA board of directors currently. Can you tell us how you got to that position and kind of what your current vision is for serving private colleges and universities? Well, I got to that position um, because we were, uh, I shouldn't, we, I say, meaning ASCA, we were in a transitional stage and there was a lot of complaining. And so I just thought instead of complaining, I would run for the position and lo and behold, I was elected. Uh, And so I see myself as putting the small colleges and universities out there because a lot of times uh, we're overshadowed by our large uh, public institutions. And so I want to be able to be the example, not only to run for an office, but um, also to let them know that they can do the same things that a large institution can do. And we are very unique. We don't have as many students, um, but that doesn't mean that we don't have um, you know, what I consider to be big problems. And so everything that happens at a larger institution happen at a smaller institution. And I think sometimes people miss that. And it's easier to focus on the large institution. And then we're like, hey, 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 we're here, we're here. Um, and so that's what really sparked me to run for the position. And hopefully um, I can uh, get our small colleges and universities to kind of step up and understand that that we have big voices as well. So that's, you know, that's what I'm trying to do now. And I think small is a fairly relative term. Like for me and my full-time role at NYU, we have 55,000 students. So when I think small, I think, you know, maybe a couple of thousand. How many students are enrolled at Kalamazoo? We have probably about 1,500 students. All right. So we're talking like a very small liberal arts institution, but probably with, I would imagine, kind of a high touch environment for administration. I'm sorry, say the last thing. Sure. I was thinking that with a population um, of 1,500, it would give you as an administration a lot of opportunity to get to know your students, maybe a lot more closely than we do at a large institution. But also that means you're probably more aware of some of the concerns that are happening. Absolutely. And, 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 and not only that, not only getting to know their students, but also getting to know their parents. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that that's the, the beauty of, you know, a small college is that you do know the students who are on your campus. And if something were to happen, someone can just call someone's name and we go, oh, we know that individual um, so that we can move forward to, to support that individual because we know if anything is happening, that means that their parents are going to call. We still, of course, follow FERPA, but we love our parents. And so, um, yes, you do have an opportunity to get to know the students very, very well, and they get get the opportunity to know you as well. So what advice do you have for maybe some of our newer professionals who are listening in terms of how to forge really strong and uh, kind of fruitful relationships with parents? 
I would say to be open and honest, you can let them know right up front that there's only so much information that we can give you and that we're here to really, um, you know, speak to the student. And uh, we do follow FERPA. Uh, However, if your student would like to, if you would like to know something about your student, please let the student come in and sign an authorization to release and I can speak to you freely. Not all the time do the student ever shows up in the office for that release. Uh, They don't want you to tell their parents everything, so that's always pretty funny to us. But we also, we tell them as much as we can, and we always give them examples. So, for instance, if we were, hypothetically, if we were talking about X, Y, and Z, then here's the process for that. Um, And so they, they like that, although... Instead of saying, I can't tell you anything. So we, we try to make sure that we keep those lines of communication open. Or they'll call and say, can you check on my student? I feel like that they're having a rough time. You know, it's like, well, we can't check on your student. But what I can do is uh, sort of see how they're doing. But that's not something I would be able to get back with you and let you know what's happening. So I think they appreciate that, too. We try to make it very clear at orientation about boundaries. So our our parents do very well. And for the folks listening that are from those larger institutions, you mentioned earlier that, you know, your institution at 1,500 students sees the same type of uh, challenges that we see at larger institutions, but that often small institutions are kind of lost in that mix. So can you give some examples of kind of what you're thinking about, what comes to mind when you're talking about similar challenges and also translating those larger practices to a smaller environment? Well, you know, I think that, you know, most people don't think that we have uh, sexual misconduct or that we have uh, drug problems or that we have uh, physical abuse or that we have emotional abuse and those kinds of things that we, we, you know, we don't have people to come on our campus and disrupt uh, people who live off campus. And that's not the case. So we have everything that's going on there. You know, you know, we have, you know, people who are bringing drugs on campus and those kinds of things. And so all of those things happen at larger institutions that somehow doesn't translate to smaller institutions. It's like, oh, you guys are so small. You only have less than 1,500 students. You know, I'm like, mm-hmm, coming from all over the place. <laughs> so they are bringing their authentic selves here. <laughs> so sure. we have to deal with everything. And proportionally, I would imagine it's pretty similar in terms of what you're seeing. It's just on a little more of a reduced scale. I would say yes. I would, and I would also say that it is um, where it may take larger institutions, um, you know, a lot of time to see these things. Um, with smaller institutions, it's just right in your face. Because someone's going to tell, someone's going to say, my friend, I don't want to tell you who I am, but my friend, um, and it's like right there because you, nine times out of 10, you know who that student is. And then you can reach out to that student where it may take a couple of weeks for an institution like yourselves that's got over 50,000 students mm-hmm. um, to hear about something that happened this past weekend. Unless it's something that's really large, but if it's something that's not large, you won't hear about it for about, you know, maybe three or four weeks. If something happened this weekend with one of our students, we would hear about it today, Monday morning. Mm -hmm. Like, hello, here's what happened. 
Yeah, we're doing the roundup on our end, uh, usually going through several hundred incidents uh, every Monday that happened over the week. So uh, I'm very jealous oh. of your ability to quickly identify. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I think there's a, that's the difference there. Yeah. All right, Karen. Well, one of the primary reasons I was so excited to have you on the show today is your expertise in overseeing both disability support as well as student conduct. And I think that you get this phenomenal gift where you understand both worlds, but we as two separate areas of student affairs don't really understand each other as well as we might be able to. So I was hoping you could talk about kind of what you've learned from both sides. Sure. I think it's almost like a marriage made in heaven. Because both of the areas, both disability services and student conduct, we must follow laws. And I think sometimes um, some of my colleagues in other large institutions and small institutions that are only dealing with disability services, they really don't understand um, where the line is in the sand when it comes to, um, you know, a person with disabilities crossing over that to that line of conduct. And so what the law tells us is that we have to deal with the behavior and, and not the disability. And so that's very, very clear. And so a lot of times what I find is that the colleagues in the disability area, they will just bend over backwards and take so long and don't understand. And this person is acting out and this person is putting their hands on someone and this person is unstable. Well, if that person with a disability is doing all of those things, then that person has now crossed over into conduct and you really need to be able to work with your conduct person so that they understand that here's what you're sending to them and you're not dealing with the disability you're dealing with you know the discipline part of it so you're dealing with their actions you're not dealing with the disability and sometimes that's hard because they don't know when when that crosses the line and so um, our laws are very clear about that, um, you know, when an individual um, is crossing the line. And so when I say our laws, I'm talking about Section 504 and the ADA. And when you deal with conduct, you're pretty much talking about the law, right? So I think what people need to understand is that there is a line in the sand. And so when any time a student um, has crossed that line, uh, the law is very, very clear about that. Um, when you talk about health and safety emergencies, you know, under uh, when you talk about, uh, you, you have to look at whether or not that person is a direct threat or significant risk or health safety of others that cannot eliminate or, or by a modification of policy practices and procedures, um, sort of look at that and say, this person is a direct threat to the college themselves or others. It is at that time that we have to, to deal with that action immediately. And so I think that's important. We're not waiting for um, something horrible to happen when we already see the signs and symptoms. So that's what's very important that I think that my colleagues in conduct need to know that if a student is posing a direct threat, uh, then he or she is no longer deemed an individual with a qualified disability um, for the purpose of 504 
protections and can be subject to the disciplinary measures, including dismissal from the college. So sometimes I think that, you know, I think vice versa. I think that the disabilities person needs to know about conduct and the conduct person needs to know about disabilities so that we are not discriminating against anyone. So that's what I would, I would, you know, say to my, my colleagues. And, and this is why it's important because we wouldn't otherwise let someone without a disability become a threat to themselves or others. That's a great threshold. I think that you mentioned there, Karen, in terms of if, if the behavior would be treated under the student code of conduct as an alleged disciplinary violation for a student without a disability, then it should be the same for the student who is identifying with a disability. That is correct. The other thing that you said that I really liked, which I'd love to reiterate for our listeners, is that we're addressing the behavior and not the disability. The other that is correct. F- the other phrase I've heard a lot associated is uh, a student living and walking through the world with a disability that can explain a behavior, but it doesn't excuse a behavior. That is correct. That it, and, and the laws are very clear about that. You know, sometimes what I hear is, well, what we want to do is we want to be able to give them a modification or we want to be able, you know, to, to work with them. And, and that's, that's fine. But if the student does not accept that modification um, and the person with the disability is refusing to accept counseling or leave of absence, then he or she will be treated like a person without a disability. And so while we, won't, we will not allow uh, students without a disability to disrupt campus, then we can't make any excuses for those with disability to disrupt campus. It's very important for, you know, our colleagues to know. And so, you know, I, even with, um, I belong to my, I belong to a head and I belong to my head, which is a Michigan my head. And it's Administrators for Higher Education and Disability Services. And it's amazing what they are going through. And one day I just said, I, I'm sorry, I really have to talk to you about, I'm switching hats because I, I am the student code of conduct, I'm the chief officer of student code of conduct at Kalamazoo College. So I'm switching hats. And everything that you're dealing with, that's a behavior. That should be transferred to your student code of conduct person. And it was like the light came on for them. Mm. And and I'm like, you shouldn't be dealing with that. You shouldn't be dealing with parents who are pushing you around about their son or daughter who has this disability. And, you know, you need to help them. And if you don't, you know, I'm going to sue. I'm going to do this. And they're afraid. So they're bending over backwards. And the laws are very clear. So, you know. That day I had to switch hats because I was like, why are they dealing with that? That, to me, has crossed over into conduct. But individuals think that because they have a disability that there's nothing that they can do with them. We'll just have to accept it. And that's not true. That's not true. I believe that student conduct officers, for the most part, could rattle off sections of applicable case law and FERPA and regulatory laws and legislative concerns that affect the student conduct profession directly. I really Mm -hmm. believe, though, that our student conduct professionals would get a little fearful if you asked them to completely discuss, you know, the relevant areas of 504 that really affect our profession. So how would you... Mm -hmm recommend that a student conduct officer get better acquainted with 504? So I would send uh, individuals to uh, www.ed, 
dot gov, and it's the uh, United States Department of Education. They have this wonderful tool that's Q&A for higher education. And so it is a QA about everything I believe that you want to know about disabilities um, as um, an officer, a student code of conduct officer, um, and what, what the amendments are, what your responsibilities are, you know, and they give very clear yes, no answers. Do you have to do this? No. And then they explain why. Do you have to do this? Yes. And then they explain why. And so I... That's one of my favorite go-to pieces right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, students transitioning um, to post-secondary education with disabilities. It's like a guide for high school educators, but it's also a guide for, uh, I would say, the conduct person, too, so that they can understand uh, what's going on, so that they can understand uh, how they are defining uh, a disability, how, you know, what what's listed as a qualified disability. They, they list mostly everything that you can think about. Uh, that is, it could be physical problems or it could be emotional and mental problems. Um, and they give a partial list of that. Uh, and, you know, so it's, it's one of those tools that you will be able to refer to and understand and also understand when your uh, disabilities person come to you and ask you questions like, well, what can we do about this? Um, you know, because this person has crossed the line and it's no longer a disability. Now it's a discipline problem, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think those things are, are good to know. If you don't understand autism, if you don't understand uh, bipolar disorders, if if you don't understand post-traumatic stress disorders and, uh, you know, separation anxiety and, and uh, speech problems and, you know, depression, um, here's where you can learn. Here's where you can learn what affects all of those individuals who have um, those type of disabilities. Um, you know, when, you know, disability, I think uh, as a disability person, we always look at uh, what are those major life activities? And so a lot of people don't understand what that is. Um, and the law, excuse me, the law clearly tells us that, um, you know, here is what the major life activities are. And if they are impaired in any way, then we uh, have to level the playing field for an individual with disabilities versus an individual without disabilities. And those major life activities can be um, something as small as breathing. Most people don't think of that, but if someone has is very uh, asthmatic, th- that's a problem, and we have to accommodate that. So it's, it's one of those things that, you know, they're thinking about. It's like, well, what about eating? Well, someone with celiac disease, right, can have a bad reaction to it and end up uh, passing away as a result of it. So it's it's not as clear and cut as we would like. It's like, well, how can, can you tell me how sleeping, how is that a major life activity? Well, people have to sleep. I mean, what about the people with narcolepsy? What about the people with chronic uh, insomnia? We still have to accommodate those individuals. So there's a lot of things that the website has that, you, that uh, um, a code of conduct person um, I think would find very interesting and um, would at least know a little bit about the disabilities part of it. And I would hope that the disabilities part will get to know what the conduct officers are dealing with as well. Um, 
so that's, I mean, those things are, are very important um, to me. And sometimes I do have to draw the line in the sand and say, can you please have that person come and see me? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, that's not something that you should be dealing with as, you know, um, a, a, let's say, an area coordinator. That's something that's happening in the halls. You know, that person has now crossed over into my area as the conduct person. They have went beyond the disabilities piece, and now they're into uh, conduct. So we, you know, we have to be able to talk to one another and understand, or at least be open to the meaning the the disabilities person asking questions of the conduct person, and the conduct person asking questions of the disability uh, individual, so that we all can get a clear understanding of what we're doing and when we should hand off to one another. Because that, to me, will lift a burden for um, the conduct person or the burden for the disabilities person who thinks that they should just take anything because the person has a disability. And that's not the case. You mentioned previously you you touched on autism for just a quick second. And I want to acknowledge that you had a standing room only presentation at the 2017 ASCA annual conference, which was on working with uh, students living on the autism spectrum um, when they come through conduct processes. So I was hoping Mm -hmm. you could share a little bit about your expertise in that area. And I know that the general mantra is when you've worked with one student with autism, you've worked with one student with autism. But that is uh, correct. There, there's a gap of knowledge in this area in student conduct officers, and I think your standing room only presentation really acknowledged that conduct officers want to learn. So, what can you share? What I can share is that right now we have uh, students who um, you hear it all the time. You know, oh, they're on the spectrum, uh, and when you hear that, that means that they're on the the, the autism spectrum. And so the autism spectrum, that's why I call it a spectrum. It can go from someone who um, is not speaking and don't want you to touch them all the way to the high-functioning individuals, which is what we see at our colleges and universities. However, these high-functioning individuals may not have um, any social cues. So they, you know, they may walk up to you and say something and you, you know, you're startled by it and you don't understand it, but they may also have outbursts. I mean, it can be autism also, you know, coupled with Tourette syndrome. I mean, it can be uh, a wide variety of things. And, you know, we have, you know, autistic uh, uh, students here. And the wonderful thing about an autistic child is that if you tell them not to do something, they'll look at you and say, okay and they won't do it again. Most individuals don't think to say that to people because they think this person has a disability. I can't say that. You can say that. You can call them in and say, here's what I'm hearing. You can't follow people. You know, you can't call them. You can't text them. You can't, you can't do any of those things without their permission. And they'll say, oh, okay. And they'll stop it completely. So it's it's just a matter, and they are bright and brilliant, which is the way that individuals should see them. But, you know, some people may say, well, what about if you have someone, you know, who is constantly, you know, twitching or who's constantly, you know, have a pencil and they're, they're it's just clicking it up on the desk constantly or, you know, they're making these sounds. I say, well, you tell them to stop it. I said, they'll stop it. 
And they say, I can do that? I'm like, absolutely you can, right? Because we're not dealing with the disability right now. What are we dealing with? The behavior. The behavior. I think you touched on something great there because I think there's a lot of fear amongst administrators who don't regularly intersect um, in the students with disability world, fear of how to address and fear of what they can address. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's because we have more and more students with autism coming to our institutions of higher education more than ever before. And they are bright and brilliant. They are very different. I would venture to say that our students without disabilities are different, but we still deal with them in different ways, right? We deal with them because we know that we can deal with them this way. But when it comes to a student with disabilities, I'm not sure why people stop in their tracks and say, that person has a disability, I can't. It's, if, you know, if you have someone in a wheelchair, you know, there's nothing wrong with their brain, They're just in a wheelchair. So do you stop giving them services? Do you stop speaking to them because they're in a wheelchair? Absolutely not. Do you stop speaking and and dealing with the behavior if someone was blind and they were, you know, out of control? Absolutely not. You would deal with them. But it's something about when someone says that they have this disability, that people just kind of tense up because they don't know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. And um, they are just like everyone else. And they have a right to be on your campus. Um, They will do whatever you ask them to do. Yes, some of them may act out, and all you have to do is correct the behavior, and you don't have to worry about them again. That's the wonderful part. Another element of this is when we are working with students with disabilities in our conduct systems, one Mm -hmm. of the questions I think conduct officers, we as a profession need to do better at asking, is what do reasonable accommodations look like in a conduct process? So... We're not dealing with reasonable accommodations in the conduct process because now you're dealing with the behavior. And if you have, and if you have a person who uh, broke someone's arm and, oh, by the way, um, they have this, you know, disability there, you know, and it's like we're not, we have ceased from the disability and start dealing with the behavior, so once if they, you know, I said it earlier, if they are a direct threat, right? Mm-hmm. And the direct threat is defined, uh, you know, in the federal regulations as a significant risk to the health or safety of others that cannot be eliminated by a modification of policies, practices, or procedures. Um, and so once that happens, you would deal with them the way that you would deal with someone without a disability if they pose a direct threat to others or the school. You, the school must take action, right? Mm-hmm. And so even if um, whenever a student is posing a direct threat, then he's no longer deemed an individual with a qualified disability. And that, is, that comes directly from the purposes of 504 protections. And that they can be subject to disciplinary, disciplinary measures, including dismissal from the college. Sure. So I think sometimes what we want to do is we always want to modify. Well, what about if we do this? And what about if we do that? What about if we send them to counseling? We can, we can do, we can put all of those things in place. But what if they refuse to accept those proposed modifications? Sure. Then they're treated like a person without a disability. 
And that's the law. That's not something that I just made up. Let's take this a little bit broader, though. And I think one of the areas that I'm looking at is, uh, you know, constantly reviewing our institution's website and conduct code for things like readability by a screen reader if we have a student who's sight impaired or, uh, you know, are our policies uh, accessible um, to anyone with with sight impaired ability or hearing impaired ability, et cetera? Mm Mm-hmm. So what mm-hmm. do those look like? How do we go about kind of making sure that our documents and our publications and our hearings are set up in a way that anyone who has a sensory sensory impairment can actively and successfully participate? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to know what their disability is. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be able to say, um, you know, if, if they have a, a hearing problem, you know, do you need someone there? But you also have to understand that just because a student uh, can't hear doesn't mean that they can uh, do, do um, uh, sign language. Right. And so if, if they can't, if they can't read or if they, I mean, not read, but if they can't look at someone and understand sign language, then that's not helping them. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about, there's all types of auxiliary aids that, that we can use uh, in post-secondary education, but you first have to find out what will work for them, you know, especially if they have a disability. And you know that they have a disability, depending on the disability, they may have certain auxiliary aids. And then some of them may have no auxiliary aids at all. And so if you need someone, some people may say, I need a reader, but they would have read the information prior to. So all they're doing is really answering questions. Um, you know, if they, you know, need, if they need for someone to slow down, then that, that can be okay. It's okay to ask, um, you know, is this clear enough for you? Um, you know, is there anything that Students with disabilities will tell you exactly what they need. You don't have to guess. They'll tell you exactly what they need. The onus of the disclosure remains on the student. Isn't that correct? That is correct. And when you matriculate to an institution of higher learning, though, higher education, um, and you say, you tell me that you have a disability, then I, I, as as the person who handles that, I can ask you for uh, documentation. And so we use documentation that's within the last three years. If they haven't had documentation within the last three years, then they have to do additional testing. And the additional testing is at the cost of the student. It's not at the cost of the institution. Uh, And so I think sometimes people get that confused. That's why I love the Q&A piece, because it tells you that, um, that that's at the, that, that belongs to, um, the parents or the student to do. Now, what you can do in the interim is give them temporary accommodations, which is what I do. What helped you in high school? You know, well, additional time on test or, you know, a quiet place to test. It's like we can arrange that until you get your testing up to date. Because what you want to make sure is that you are providing them the same opportunity as a person without disability. So I'm not going to tell my student to wait until you get all of your testing and then I'm going to give you these services. No, I give them temporary services until they complete um, or they get additional testing um, that's up to date. And so you can, you can do that as well. It, you know, it's, it's very clear and it really just depends. Um, like we do, we have movies here on Friday and Saturday night. So all of the movies that we get 
um, have closed captioning. Hmm. And sometimes students are like, why do we have to read? It's like, well, you don't have to read, but you don't know who's in the audience. Someone may be in the audience that need to be able to read because they can't hear very well. And then they go, oh. And most people who don't have a disability don't really think about, you know, those kind of simple things that we take for granted. Sure. So Karen, oh, yeah. I, I want to shift gears a little bit and kind of walk sure. into a realm where I hear a lot in the conduct uh, area in terms of this intersection with uh, disability, which is specifically around the area of comfort and therapy animals and how they mm-hmm. relate to fair housing and classrooms and um, how we work with things when we have students who might be allergic to somebody else's therapy or comfort animal or assistive animal. Uh, service animal. And then um, also kind of the idea of where does one student's right to have their service animal um, kind of end when it causes a disruption to um, their roommates or suite mates. And let me rephrase that. I did mean therapy or comfort animal, not service animal. So just to clarify for the audience, a service animal is an animal that forms an ass- performs an assistive function uh, in some sort of physical capacity. So for example, mm-hmm. guiding or um, being aware of when seizures may occur or doing things mm-hmm. like turning on and off lights or opening doors, whereas a mm-hmm. therapy or comfort animal is really designed as an emotional support animal to manage anxiety disorders or depression or, or other things like that. And they're not considered the same under the ADA, but under fair housing, it's a lot different. Um, so Karen, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Well, right now there's a lot of... <laughs> There's a lot of students who want an emotional support animal, and sometimes it's uh, it's pretty funny to me because they're not sure what to call them. You know, it's like, I need a service animal, and I say, well, okay, so if you need a service animal, then, you know, here's what the service animal will have to do, and it's limited to a dog and um, a miniature horse. Mm-hmm. So and they're like, oh, that's not what I want. I said, well, you're probably looking at an emotional support animal. So um, here is, no. There are guidelines for that as well. So you would have to have, you know, you know, if it's anxiety or, or whatever it is, um, all of that should be documented. And the, the emotional support animal um, should be able to stop you from or calm you down when you're about to have an anxiety attack. Or it needs to perform something as opposed to, I just miss my uh, cat or my dog, and so I want them on campus. Emotional support animals are also confined to a student's room Mm -hmm. and usually in um, an animal cage. Um, They are not allowed in um, residence halls. I mean, not residence halls. The residence hall general areas, you know, like in lounges and things like that, they're not allowed in classes. They're not allowed in cafeterias. And they're not allowed to just roam the campus. And so, because that that particular animal is just for you. If, in fact, you have a roommate who is allergic to cats or who are allergic to dogs, um, then it is incumbent upon the institution um, to be aware of that and to also uh, make sure that those individuals are taken care of as well. Now, sometimes you may have, um, here, sometimes we have students who come back and they want an emotional support animal and they already have their roommates in place. 
I have to tell them, then you have to make sure that your roommates are not allergic to the cat or to the dog. Or um, And it's really limited to size, too. I mean, you, you can't have a Great Dane as, you know, emotional support. <laughs> where are you going to put him or her, right? Uh, and so, you know, usually, like I have, uh, I have a couple of cats on campus, uh, and one dog, uh, and they're very small and students understand that. And, you know, they are trained to, to be able to stop whatever is about to happen with our students, uh, in terms of, of, you know, their, their disability or, um, you know, their emotional stability. And so we haven't had any problems with that. But I know that there's some public institutions that have had huge problems with that. And I would say to them um, to make sure that you have a really, really good policy. Because if you don't have a really good policy, if anything happens, you don't have a leg to stand on. And I would say that policy needs to be vetted through your um, um, your lawyer or the campus um, uh, lawyers so that uh, everyone is on the same page. Because if something should happen, um, then the college could be liable. And I, I, I know of one example where uh, there was a... Uh, supposedly an emotional support animal uh, who was just lunging at people. Clearly, mm-hmm. that person, that animal wasn't trained and lunging at another animal, another dog, um, and also ended up killing the other animal. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, it's important that that those animals know why they're there. Sure. It's it's not just to run wild and have fun, uh, and so when I I explain that to individuals, you know, you know, it's like okay, but it's not a piece where this is the family dog or cat, and I just love to have them with me. No, doesn't work like that. So I think that's important for people to understand what you can and cannot do. A lot of times, I think where people get in trouble, or colleges and universities get in trouble, is because. They have housing, but they're treating it, and it's off campus, as, and they're the landlords. So if they're the landlords, now they have to follow fair housing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but if you have a residence hall, I mean, you know, it's, again, not a lot of our students, you know, want emotional support animals once you tell them what, what it is and what it is not. I once had a situation where a student's emotional support animal was a boa constrictor snake. Um, (laughs) That caused quite a ruckus on the campus, especially when the student brought it to class. Cannot. Cannot come to class. Cannot. Cannot be in the classroom. Cannot be in common areas. Cannot be in the cafeteria. Mm -mm. And cannot be used to freak out your roommate. That's for sure. You can't put them in the bed. (laughs) <laughs> have your roommates screaming that's not you know it's it's not it's not a joke it's supposed to help you right. <laughs> so and i think once you have that conversation with students they understand and you know if you hear of something you need to follow up right or the student had you know this animal they were outside they're running they're running wild they don't have a leash anytime the student is outside to relieve him or herself must be on a leash and can't be on campus. If you want to walk, you got to walk the 
cat dog off campus, you know, as opposed to on campus. It, you know, it can't it can't be in the classrooms, can't be in cafeterias again, can't be in the common areas in the residence hall. It must be in your room and in a cage. So, and you must have, you know, if you decide to go away for the weekend, you must have an alternative alternative caregiver for the for the animal. And those individuals are responsible for your animal when you leave. You are an extraordinary wealth of information on this topic, and I know that we could spend several hours, um, but unfortunately, we are running short on time in our show today, so I always like to ask our guests um, what you're reading, so uh, anything related to student conduct, students with disabilities, or, you know, your favorite Sue Grafton novel, whatever that may be. (laughs) We are currently reading Generation Z Goes to College. (laughs) I can say people get ready. So Generation Z are those students born between 1995 through 2010, and they are rapidly replacing millennials on college campuses. So, you know, we know that these students are driven by different motivation, learning styles, characteristics, skill set, and social concerns than previous generations. So I would say let's get ready, campuses. Because Generation Z is coming. Who's the author of that one? Oh, the author is uh, Corey C. Miller, C-O-R-E-Y-S-E-E-M-I-L-L-E-R, and Megan Grace. Spells her name M-E-G-H-A-N, and then Grace, G-R-A-C-E. It's a good, quick read, so... I'm excited to hear that your team is working on that book right now. You know, the millennials have complained for so long that they're tired of being talked about and studied as if they don't exist, which I totally understand. Uh, But I also wonder how millennials may react to not being talked about anymore. So Mm -hmm. it'll be an interesting (laughs) juxtaposition. Yeah, they may have a problem with that. It's like, we're no longer relevant, people. But yeah. Right. Well, millennials are now our young professionals in student conduct as well. So, you know, all of our uh, our coordinators, uh, coordinator level or, you know, entry level conduct officer positions are now being filled uh, by students that were, you know, class of 2015 or class of 2014 Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of their Mm -hmm. undergrad year. So, you know, they help us bridge the gap, I think, and understand a lot of uh, slang terms and a lot of new technology culture. So mm-hmm. I never want to underestimate or undervalue our millennial colleagues. I just think it's a kind of a funny thing to see what's happening with Gen Z. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Or anyone, any uh, individual like myself who has a 16-year-old, you know, you just stay abreast of everything. I'm like, really? Huh. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, he's 16. That's all I got to say sometimes. I'm like, well, he's 16. So (laughs) He'll be a very well-prepared college student, I can imagine. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And Karen, if people want to reach you uh, to ask you follow-up questions or to ask about resources, how can they get a hold of you? They can uh, email me at K, as in Karen, last name Joshua, J-O-S-H-U-A, at KZ. O-O-dot-E-D-U. So that's kjoshua at kzoo.edu. It's K-Z-O-O. Don't put the A in there because it'll keep bouncing back. So it's kzoo.edu. Or you can reach me by phone at area code 269-337-7209. 
All right. And if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can always tweet us at ASCA Podcast. That's ASCA P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Or you can email us at ASCA Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Karen, for sharing your viewpoint today. Thank you for having me. Next time on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome David Pei and Judy Lee from NYU Shanghai in Shanghai, China. They'll be talking to us about global student conduct in the Chinese higher education context. I hope you come back and join us and hope you all have a wonderful winter break and we'll be speaking to you in January. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, co-produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mader. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for featured guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCA Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>